0: Feral cats are the primary driver of the decline of small mammals. We've lost more than 30 mammal species in Australia over the last couple hundred years. And the primary driver of that is cats.
1: Welcome to another episode of Rewilding the Worlds with me, Ben Goldsmith. And I'm very happy to be sitting here with my friend, Tim Allard, who's in Australia. Where exactly in Australia are you, Tim?
0: So right now, I'm on what's called the land of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation. So that's in Perth, Western Australia. And I live on my own little sanctuary uh, on a little five-acre block
1: just to the south of Perth. Amazing. Well, Tim runs an organisation called the Australian Wildlife Conservancy. And it, it's hard for me here in Britain to fathom the scale at which this organisation works. I mean, Australia is mind-bogglingly huge. And... Um, so very different from all the places I've known in my life. I'm, I'm yet to visit Australia and I want to go. And so the work that Tim and his organisation does is just extraordinary and the newsletters that come in blow my mind and I'm, I'm just very, very excited to have you with me, Tim. Um, Tim, can we start with um, I'd love to know where how you got to this because you didn't always
0: work in conservation, right? No. And to give my secrets away, 12, 13 years ago I was in mining and oil and gas. I was running an engineering company servicing you yeah, the, the big oil and gas companies and mining companies and so on. But if you go back far enough, I grew up on a small cattle farm. We had a small family cattle farm in Victoria. And when I was about seven or eight, my dad was a national park ranger. And so on our school holidays, I'd head out with him. Uh, we, you know, my brothers and sisters would go out with dad. We'd run around out in the bush when he was doing his rangery things and – Yeah, we would play around in the bush and then we had the farm to grow up on. And from there, I spent a decade in the Royal Australian Navy and I travelled the world uh, in the Navy. The Navy brought me to Western Australia when I moved into oil and gas and construction. But after doing that for about 15 years, I realised that there was something missing and I needed to figure out what that was. So I sat down and thought about what are my values, what are my connections, recognised it was land and... I went through and figured out, well, who has land? And I looked at government. I looked at the pastoral companies, the cattle companies. And my story is that it was a Friday evening. I'd had a couple of glasses of red wine and I opened up the paper and there was an advertisement for Australian Wildlife Conservancy. And two days later, I was in talking to the founder, Martin Copley. And two weeks later, I was employed and 13 years later, here I am. It's quite a transition, but
1: but not 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 entirely unobvious, given that you had this love of nature from a kid, and, and lots of people that work in conservation have have spent a lot of time wanting to get into that work before actually making the move. Um, and, and Australia, I mean, we read a lot about quite how depleted nature has been and how harmed by all kinds of different factors. And I, you, on the occasions we've met here in London, you've told me some really lovely stories about what the first European settlers found when they arrived in Australia in terms of the abundance of nature. And can you just give me a feel for how Australia was
0: once? Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting story. And there's a number of books about that transition and that time. And I've developed a habit of reading the journals of some of the early European explorers that came to Australia, people like Leichhardt and Sturt and, and so on. To understand what they saw when they first started venturing past the urban areas of Australia, and really what they saw was what Australia was. It was a managed landscape. There'd been Indigenous people living here for tens of thousands of years. They were managing the landscape through the use of fire, uh, particularly in Australia. Fires are part of the an integral part of the landscape. There was a thriving, heaving population of small mammals, and that's really what Australia is is known for: is small mammals. And there's journal records of some of the explorers in central Australia in what we would typically think of as the deserts, being able to lean down out of the horseback and pick up mammals, and small mammals, and put them into their saddle packs. Uh, it's, it was a remarkable, thriving, productive landscape full of all sorts of creatures. You know, 80%, 85% of what we have in Australia is endemic. It can't be found anywhere else. And that's what they found. You read the journal of Captain Cook, and the botanists that he had on board banks and so on, they just couldn 't believe what they were seeing in Australia. It was beyond their imagination it 's a remarkable place
1: yeah we, we, we and we think of Australia of course as this as this enormous wilderness when 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 the European explorers first arrived, but in fact, you use the term managed, it was intricately managed by those indigenous societies that that had been there for forty or so thousand years, including kind of Groves of little fruit trees and nut trees and the way they would cultivated certain trees to grow in certain places and the way they cared for the soil. I remember reading one anecdote somewhere about some European uh, explorers who saw some indigenous women tilling the soil with their hands to pull these bulbs out of the ground. There's certain bulbs that are edible and contain moisture and so on. And, and they jumped down and said, "No, no, look, we have tools for that. You know, we have these metal shovels and things that will make the work much easier and much quicker." And the, the women said, "No, no, no, it's fragile. Don't, no, 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 don't stab the soil mm, with that mm. with that thing." And um, I think this idea of wilderness is an interesting one in the Australian context.
0: It is. It, it's it's a fascinating study that, as you said, the Indigenous peoples for tens of thousands of years forty thousand years at least, if not sixty thousand years they've been living and working across the Australian continent. Yeah, there's, I can't quite remember the, the number, but there's more than 230 tribal groups of Indigenous peoples in Australia and many hundred more dialects and languages across the country. So there's this highly evolved and highly advanced group of people living and working in the country. And the I think the the thing that we need to keep in mind, we as European descent, is what we think have managed is very different to what the Australian Aboriginals think of managed, And it's really, as you articulated, that the way they went about and used the country and cared for the country was very different to when yeah, English settlers turned up and started importing and utilising European farming methods, which is a wasn't a great start for the country. So before we get on to farming, I'd love to talk about invasive
1: species because it strikes me that that is – you know, the, one of the fundamental environmental challenges that, that's faced by the conservation and rewilding movement in Australia. How did that come about? And how did Australia end up with foxes and cats and rabbits and rats and donkeys and goats and camels and pigs and all kinds of other species? How, and what, was that a conscious effort by European settlers to bring those species? And why?
0: Yeah, it's 200 years on and we we can sit here and shake our heads but i think if you think about it as a construct of the time europeans arrived and you know rabbits were brought in as sporting sporting activity you know they were released down near melbourne in victoria for shooting pleasure and the rabbits figured out pretty quickly that what they'd been released into was pretty good and they took off foxes i can't quite recall the detail on the foxes but similar they were brought into provide sport for those early European settlers. Cats is probably slightly different. Cats really arrived, we think, with the first fleet. Uh, So a couple hundred years ago, people turned up, ships have turned up, and the cats have got off the ships. And again, very quickly, they found a continent full of small mammals, what we call the critical weight range. So mammals that are anywhere between half to one and a half kilos. They're the ideal prey size for feral cats. And their defence mechanism is largely... To sit still and so cats just went bananas and they've invaded now almost 100 percent of the australian continent so it's it's a combination of mistakes and a combination of deliberate introductions you contrast that with the camel is another example where camels were used in the early days of opening up the outback you know particularly with the interior railway lines and servicing stations and so on to transport goods when rail got going and cars and motor vehicles got going, camels were released. And we now have millions of camels running around in the outback.
1: So before we get on to camels, so would you say that cats, above all else, are the biggest issue when it comes to invasive species in Australia,
0: given that it's, it is a land of small mammals? Yeah. Feral cats are the primary driver of the decline of small mammals. You know, we've lost more than 30 mammal species in Australia over the last couple of hundred years and the primary driver of that is cats, and also impacted by mismanaged fire. So when you have the impact of feral cats, mismanaged fire, we lose our small mammals. And that's really what's happened. Below that, you have the foxes, impact of rabbits and camels and so on. But it's really feral cats. And, you know, the estimates vary uh, on how many feral cats there are, but they're anywhere between two and a half to five million feral cats in Australia, depending on the time of the year and the conditions. Each of those cats is eating somewhere around five native species every night. So you only have to do the mathematics and understand the impact that cats and feral cats are having to our native wildlife. It is the primary driver of our decline and is probably, One of the main drivers between our operational strategy of conservation management of mitigating the impact of threats like the feral cat.
1: Just across the water in New Zealand, they've got similar issues with not just feral cats, but also mustelids, things like stoats. And I saw that the New Zealand government has announced a predator-free New Zealand goal. And they're spending an enormous amount of money um, changing society's attitudes towards killing these animals such that you now find traps in suburban gardens and suburban parks and they're doing their best to to actually eradicate these species. Do you think New Zealand can manage that? And and presumably in a place as big as Australia, eradication is not something with current technology we can hope for.
0: That's right. I I think New Zealand have really grabbed the bull by the horn, so to speak, that they've come out, they've set a big ambitious goal, a big hairy goal, feral predator free, and I really applaud them for being that ambitious to do it. And being an island nation, it's probably manageable to achieve it. It's not going to be easy, and there will be setbacks and challenges with how they go about it, and particularly getting the community to support it. And that's always a big issue of getting the social licence to implement programs like that. But they got into it early, and I really applaud them for it. In an Australian context, that's much more challenging, just the scale of the country. And the small population we have—you know, Australia's population is 25 or 26 million people for an area not much smaller than the continental United States. So it's a vast country with a small population. You, you've also got bigger invasive
1: mammals, so kind of lots of deer, lots of goats. Um, I don't know whether there are feral sheep or not. Donkeys, large numbers of donkeys, and, and of course you've mentioned um, the the feral camels. I wonder, do you think it's—is it absolute? Truth, in your opinion, that these are negative in in terms of their impact on the environment. The reason why I ask is you know, that the, there's a concept known as Pleistocene rewilding, in which people suggest that perhaps there were large megafauna species in the past that may or may not have been wiped out by man, who fulfilled a certain ecological role and which is now missing. So, for example, mustangs and burros, the the feral horses and donkeys of the southwestern United States, they create scrapes in the ground. They're prey for cougars. And it's said that there was a, an American equid that was wiped out by the early settlers that arrived across the Bering Straits 12, 14,000 years ago. And therefore, the consensus is not to eradicate these species, but to manage them. Now, is it possible that having half a million or a million camels in the outback might have some positives in your view?
0: Well, look, it is true that there were large herbivores in Australia. So we had the megafauna, so giant wombats and giant kangaroos and, and other species, absolutely. And you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure of the details when they, when they departed the earth, but somewhere in the order of 10,000 years ago or, or slightly more. And we have fossils of those species on some of our sanctuaries. We regularly turn up you know, megafauna fossils. I think the challenge I have with retaining a feral herbivore, being a camel, goat, deer, pigs, whatever the case may be, is we've got our native animal population is in dire straits. And if I use cattle as an example, if you think of the some of the Australian outbacks and some of the iconic imagery you see of the cracking clays, so when the water dries out, you know, the end of the dry season and the clays and the soils crack, those cracks are habitat for little animals from snakes and so on, but also to this little fella called a planigale. He's only about the size of my thumb, and he lives down inside those cracks. So when you have the feral herbivores or the cattle and camels and so on, they trample that habitat and we lose it. So I struggle with the idea that we should retain them because when we have them there, they're impacting the habitat of these small mammals that should be there already and should have every right to exist in the absence of feral herbivores like camels and so on. Now, that's not to say you know, I'm, I'm a pragmatic conservationist and we work with pastoralists, so cattle companies and land cattle farmers and so on. There's a place for cattle in the landscape, sheep in the landscape. I'm not a vegetarian. I eat meat as a part of my diet. But there's a place for it. There's a way to manage those impacts and limit those impacts so you still provide habitat for native species. And just to sort of extend that thought a little bit, We're doing a pastoral partnership in Queensland with a company called the Northern Australian Pastoral Company. And they have six million hectares of land that they manage for cattle growth. But they have one of our iconic species, the bilby, in their cow paddocks. So they've got the bilby and cattle coexisting in their paddocks. And that's really cool. So one of my big interests in Australian conservation is how do we unlock the model, the algorithm for, if you will, of bilbies and cattle coexisting, knowing that half of Australia is managed for pastoralism, we can roll out a model across vast elements of Australia where we still have cattle and we still have sheep, but we also have habitat and outcomes for, for native wildlife.
1: Is it possible that some of these large herbivore species were here before the Europeans? So we, re- we read a lot about the water buffalo and there's, of course, that, that iconic scene in Crocodile Dundee where he where he subdues just with a look of his eye and a movement of his hand, that huge water buffalo in the road. And I've read that water buffalo may possibly have arrived from the islands of Southern Indonesia before Europeans and may have therefore had more time to evolve into the landscape. And, and of course the saltwater crocodiles of the North of Australia are doing incredibly well um, on account of eating young water buffalo and and of course the, the the feral hogs that exist there too.
0: How do you feel about that idea? Yeah, if i start with the cat as a as a slight adjunct or tangent to that there is some commentary that feral cats arrived with the dutch maybe about 500 years ago when dampier and others were off the western australian coast that cats arrived in australia at that point not with the first fleet i haven't seen yet the compelling evidence but there is it's it's a potential and it's a possible scenario that that's that's what occurred the buffalo Probably did come from Indonesia. Whether or not they've been there for several hundred years, I I don't think so. Again, when you read the the journals of Leichhardt, one of the, he was a, a German guy who did a big trip up the East Coast and across the north of Australia. He didn't see buffalo in his travels and he went through all those areas through the Northern Territory in Queensland and he didn't see buffalo. And there's no, at least in my knowledge, there's no understanding that Indigenous. Culture has recorded the presence of buffalo prior to Europeans bringing them into the country. It's not to say they weren't brought over in some manner. You know, Indonesian fishers fishermen have been visiting Australia for many, many thousands of years, so it's quite possible. But I'm not sure that there was enough to to make them a viable population over time. You extend that to you know the point about crocodiles. Uh, you know, are doing very well, and that's right. They are doing very well. They were predated on. They were shot quite openly. For their skins and crocodile meat and so on, they're now a protected species and they're doing very well. But what we want them to do is to regulate their population through self-selection through resource, food resource availability. That's that's a healthy functioning system, not to be supplemental fed. Not that I'm opposed to the meeting buffalo and feral herbivores like buffalo, but we would prefer things like crocodiles to be self-regulating through the natural availability of their food resource.
1: You're listening to Rewilding the World with me, Ben Goldsmith, and this podcast is sponsored by my friends at Vivo Barefoot. I didn't necessarily have it in mind to work with a sponsor on these podcasts, unless it was a brand and a company that I really love, and Vivo Barefoot falls into that category. Until I met Galahad Clark, founder of Vivo Barefoot, it had never occurred to me that the rigid shoes we wear on our feet all day every day might in fact not be very good for us. Well, with Vivo Barefoot, they've figured it out. These are shoes which are flexible and mimic the effect of walking around barefoot. I love mine. I wear them the whole time. I'm a real convert, and I think you will be too. So get a pair at a 15% discount with the code VIVOREWILDING15, which is valid until the 30th of April, 2024. The website is vivobarefoot.com. Read the About section to understand the story better. It's really, really interesting stuff. So when it comes to the work of the Australian Wildlife Conservancy on this, on this massive scale, you've got partnerships with the very large ranchers who, who have it in their DNA increasingly to, to conserve wildlife alongside their ranching activities. You've also got land that you've acquired um, at quite a big scale and you use fencing. And fencing seems to be the most effective way to experience that rebound in native small mammals that, that we so desire. Can you talk a little bit about how you go about choosing land to buy, where you've done that, what sort of scale, what sort of price, you know, what, what's the model really for that side of your activity?
0: Yeah. So we're a 32-year-old organisation. And when our founder, Martin Copley, started the organisation, and he's a British businessman, so I took a British business and to start, start what we're doing, he started off through an acquisition programme. So we bought properties. Here in Western Australia is where we started. So the spiritual home of AWC is here in Western Australia. And through the Kimberley of the Northwest of Western Australia, and you and I've talked, Ben, about you visiting the Kimberley, a remarkable part of the world, one of the world's last wild places. Then we moved across Northern Australia, acquiring ranches or pastoral leases is what they're termed in Australia. And we did that for about 20 years. So we own outright anywhere between about four to four and a half million hectares through leases and and uh, freehold properties. So it's a significant scale of activity. The last 10 years, the price of land has gone through the roof. And to give you an example, there's a little animal in Australia called the Carpentarian rock rat. It's a cute, very small, sort of a large rat-sized animal, lives on a property called Woolagrang Station in the Northern Territory. So this is the Gulf of Carpentaria Coast in the Northern Territory. And it can only be found, the only place on the planet it can be found is Wollongong Station. And we looked at buying it somewhere around 2010, 2011. It was on the market for $21 million, Australian dollars. We passed on it then, and it came back on the market last year for $57 million dollars. So there's no way we as an offer private can raise fifty-seven million dollars, let alone the two million dollars a year it would require to run and manage the property. So we have to form partnerships. So we, in a very strategic way, look at who has land across Australia, who are the big landholders, and we proactively go out to form partnerships. So our mission is the effective conservation of all Australian animal species. We need access to land. So who has land? If we can buy it, we will, because it gives us security of tenure. But where we can't buy it, we form partnerships with ranchers, with government agencies, national park agencies, and importantly, the Indigenous peoples of Australia.
1: And those partnerships revolve around primarily control and fencing out
0: of invasives? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point. When we work with pastoralists or, or ranchers, we often have very similar goals. You know, it's weed management, fire management, feral animal control. So we're, we're trying to demonstrate how we can come together to generate great outcomes. And then where we can, we'll build large-scale fenced areas. And I think it's worth me painting a little bit of a picture of what these fenced areas are like. And you know, I'd always encourage people to go online and, and Google what these are. But when I say large-scale fenced areas, you know, we're building them to enclose around 10,000 hectares. So... Yeah, you could put a large part of the greater metropolitan part of London inside these fenced areas and still have room left over. The fence itself is about six feet high. It's got what we call a floppy top, so a part of the netting leans outwards. We have electric wires on the outside about halfway up and what we call a skirt that lays flat on the ground extending outwards for about two or three feet to stop digging animals. They're designed to stop the ingress of cats, and foxes, predators, into it. So we don't call them an enclosure, we call them an exclosure. They're excluding animals from the landscape, so excluding cats and foxes, feral predators. Within that fenced area, we eradicate the threats, so primarily cats and foxes, but anything else that might be there like deer, goats, pigs, and so on. And then we do a reintroduction program, a rewilding program. So we'll identify the species that should be there and start a reintroduction, a rewilding program. The question you ask so is if, if I pull back a little bit about where and why we build them. So it's probably the best way is to think about Australia as a continent of two halves. You've got northern Australia and southern Australia. Foxes in Australia only go far northwards. It's about the Tropic of Capricorn, and cat, whereas cats go everywhere. In northern Australia, it's also a monsoonal landscape, so large waterfall, rainfalls and so on. So it's very hard to fence and build in those areas. So Southern Australia, typically it's easier to build a fence and you also have the dual impact of cats and foxes. It's also in Southern Australia because of the dual impact. That's where you've had the biggest mammal loss. So you build a fence, you enclose the best habitat and varied habitat that you can to support as many species. So in a number of these projects, we aim for about 10 rewilded species. And we're doing this right at a continental scale. We're doing them in Western Australia, the Northern Territory, Queensland, New South Wales, and South Australia. So a re-wilding, national rewilding program. The scale is mind-boggling, as I said at the start of our conversation.
1: How do you identify which species were in which parts of Australia? You've got quite scant records, and probably a lot of the harm had already been done by the time people were meaningfully
0: surveying all this stuff. Yeah, you're absolutely spot on, Ben that's one of the big challenges and it continues to be a challenge to this day so there's been a lot of work done trying to map the traditional ranges of many of our species but it's the the way that's done is really using information like the journals of European explorers you know any records you know conversations that can be held with indigenous peoples of what they know habitat types you know environmental conditions where you can extrapolate range and so on and again as a managed landscape much of australia we know and through fossil records is the other other obvious one of course and we know that many of the species covered vast ranges of australia things like bandicoots numbats bilbies all these species that many people in the uk will have never heard of but roamed vast areas of australia and they're now limited to these very small areas primarily because of the impact of cats. So the species we typically target are those that can't withstand the pressure of feral cats. So they're the small critical weight range, half to one and a half kilos, bilbies, betongs, bandicoots, various mice and rodent species, gales They're the ones we target because they're the ones that struggle to withstand the impact of cats. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. In a
1: European context, it had always been the – the the consensus view that species like golden eagles and wolves required rocky, far away, mountainous habitat. And as these species have started to make a recovery, we realise that they actually do very well in in lowland, kind of lush woodland habitat, and even in quite suburban habitat. You know, the, there are wolves now on the outskirts of 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 kind of several major European cities: Paris, Brussels, Luxembourg. And it, it, it's mm. just that we pushed them there. That that, that those mountainous. Areas were the only places where they could survive. So I guess it's a similar story in Australia and, and that some of these species are thriving in places that are somewhat unexpected. What about the predators? Tasmanian tiger, for example, is, is extinct. The, the Tasmanian devil is only in Tasmania but was probably on the mainland at one stage. The dingo, an introduced species that's probably been there for tens of thousands of years but introduced nevertheless. What's your relationship
0: with those species? Yeah, that's, it's, it's a real challenge yeah, and we think about this actively with our uh, reintroduction projects behind, you know, with the enclosures the that we've built, that at some point we'll need to reintroduce predators into the system to maintain or yeah, ensure that we've got a healthy functioning system. In saying that, we do have native predators in the system, things like snakes, eagles, owls. In fact, owls have been a big problem for some of our very small animals that we've reintroduced, and we've had to build enclosures to allow the reintroductions to occur. Um, same with eagles, goannas, and so on. We've had to pick them up and take them out of the fenced area so we can allow our populations to, to build up. Then we have other native predators like quolls. And these, many people probably don't know what a quoll is, but it's, a, it's an animal, a native carnivore. It's about the size of a cat, uh, and there's various species of quoll across the country. And so we've now just started to reintroduce quolls to some of our properties, not within the fenced area, but on the outside to see how they can subsist in the landscape. And we're doing feral cat suppression projects and research around this. And at some point in the future, when we're comfortable that we can do it safely, we'll start to put predators within the system. So there are native predators, again, things like quolls and so on. Dingoes is a challenging story because... Yeah, in many states of Australia, you're required to bait. You know, landholders are required to bait for dingoes or for wild dogs, and whatever you do for a wild dog impacts a dingo, and so that's a pretty challenging circumstance for for native animals. And we we classify dingoes as native animals. We recognise that we need to be a part of a community. We can't work in opposition to the community. We need the community to buy in and support what we're doing. So, the dingo side of it is very challenging, but In the absence of dingoes, inside our fenced areas, we use quolls, eagles, owls, goannas, snakes, and so on. The story of the dingo kind of echoes the story of
1: the wolf in Europe. It's sort of tragic, really, the kind of demonization, the the fear, the the persecution, the poisoning, the shooting – is is there a changing of attitudes towards dingoes in Australia a, as the understanding grows that in those places where dingoes are tolerated, you get a much greater suppression of invasive herbivores such as
0: feral deer, feral pigs and so on? Yeah, it's a very good point you've made, Ben, and it's it's quite a complex point at the same time. Again, if you go back to Europeans arriving in Australia and they're trying to be sheep farmers using those European methods and dingoes were presumed to be predating upon sheep in particular and decimating flocks then domestic dogs became wild dogs there's some you know level of hybridization between them so effectively all dogs were treated as wild dogs and needed to be controlled and so our dingo population suffered badly Yeah, you know, we've got some of the world's longest fences in australia for keeping dingoes out of large parts of australia you know Something like 20, 25% of the country has been fenced to keep dingoes out. But there is a gradual change, particularly within the pastoral farming industries, recognising that when you have dingoes in the landscape, they control the kangaroo population. Yeah, kangaroo is another interesting story that Europeans have arrived and we've created these vast areas of lovely green grass for our cattle and sheep and kangaroos love it. So the kangaroo population has boomed and there's many, 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 many more kangaroos in Australia than, than in pre-European history. But we, ha- we have taken the dingo and those large predators out of the system to control the kangaroo population. So there is now a growing sense, there's a community change and this is not just around dingoes. This is a growing change of sentiment around Australian biodiversity, the Australian nature. And there is a growing change. Yeah, we've got an island, what used to be called Fraser Island, in Queensland, which is now called Gari, the the Indigenous name. And it's got a wild dingo population, and there are dingo impacts. There's attacks on kids and and adults. But there's a recognition by the community that these are wild animals as a part of the landscape. So there's no suggestion that we should get rid of dingoes anymore. It's about how do humans change their behaviour to accommodate the dingo. That's a great change to see
1: yeah that that kind of consciousness shift is taking place over here in britain and europe as well to some degree and i think what's interesting in australia is is the attachment to european species you know and and the denigration of native species and you mentioned to me once that a lot of the streets were lined with with european tree species and people felt that the native ones somehow weren't good enough and as a result, you've got invasive willow and, and a bunch of other European species that clog up waterways and so on. And that attitudes are now changing in Australia to value Australian native wildlife and native trees and so on. And and, and that's starting to be reflected even in the kind of
0: streets of, of suburban Australia. Yeah. Um, right outside my office is a crop of London plane trees. Yeah. <laughs> And that's out of at the front of the office of the largest conservation organisation in Australia, if not one of the largest in the world. So it's an example of you know, how we've valued nature. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up in Australia. Uh, my parents are English, actually. My dad's from Worcestershire. My mum's from Windsor. Going to school, I was taught about lions and tigers and bears and gorillas. I didn't know a bilby existed until I left school. I didn't know a betong existed until I left school. That's only now starting to change. And I think COVID had a large part of it because one of the few connections people had to a a sane world through lockdown was nature, being able to go down to the local park and connect to nature. The big bushfires we had in Australia back in 2019, 2020 was the first time that the impact of wildlife had been really well publicised. So there is a growing awareness both, and I'm really pleased and heartened by the, the new generation. The young kids coming through are really starting to push for change you know, at the political level by their employers. you know, Corporates are now starting to reach out saying, what can we do? We need to be a better corporate citizen. Our shareholders require it. Our employees require it. So there is this change. And what I'm really pleased and what I've been very sensitive to is the world has been talking about the climate crisis, but the world hadn't been talking about biodiversity loss. And what we need to do as a human species is to recognise these are one and the same crises: the loss of climate and the loss of our biodiversity. If we lose one and save the other, we're as in bad a situation as at the start. So we need to solve for climate and for biodiversity at the same time.
1: Tim, I was really excited to see that Tasmanian devils have been reintroduced or introduced, I'm not quite clear, onto the mainland uh, from
0: Tasmania. What's the story there? They're probably not what we would call reintroduced to the mainland. There's been an insurance population uh, set up and established on the mainland in in New South Wales. So for those who don't know, the Tasmanian devils were suffering from this, um, this disease, a face mange disease. And there was quite a lot of concern that we could potentially lose the Tasmanian devil population. Yeah, completely, go extinct. And so insurance populations were set up uh, in New South Wales, free of the disease that could then be used to rewild the populations down the track if we did happen to lose them. Happily, the Tassie devil population, there's, you know, recovery going on there. They're showing resistance to the mange uh, or to the facial tumours. So, you know, we've we've had conversations internally about bringing Tassie devils back to some of our fenced areas, to our safe havens, but we would only do that, that we're several years – it's similar to the dingo within the fenced areas that we need pretty healthy, viable populations of our native animals before we put in a predator as fearsome. It's a Tassie, a Tassie devil. last thing I'd want to do is to put them in there and they're going to eat all our bettongs and bilbies. So we've got to be pretty thoughtful about when we do that. But those populations, the insurance populations and the devil populations in Tasmania, I think are doing reasonably well. Do the big ranching companies that, that you partner with producing beef
1: and and which have sheep as well, do they get credit? I mean, if in, in, in North America, you can buy dolphin-friendly tuna, a tuna that's caught with kit that doesn't kill dolphins. Now, is there kind of wildlife-friendly beef, or is, is, there really, is there any kind of value placed on
0: that by the Australian consumer? I'd say it's in the early stages of that. So our, our large pastoral partner, Northern Australian Pastoral Company, NAPCO, they they sell a lot of their beef product into the European Union, uh, and they've got a a marketing program around that that talks about the sustainability and the, the way that that beef has been grown. Yeah, they're investing in methane emissions, reducing methane emissions through supplement feed to the, to the cattle. They talk about bringing in Australian Wildlife Conservancy to help look at their land and care for their land. They're very sensitive to the health of their land, what we call the rangelands in Australia. The retention of the Mitchell Grass Plains, thousands of square kilometres of Mitchell Grass Plains of maintaining that. So we could be cynical and say that they're doing it to market their product and sell it. But I don't mind that in a pragmatic sense that if they need to do that to sell their product and that allows us to be bought in to help take care of their country and get better outcomes for our biodiversity then I'm happy to go along with that and work within it. As long as we're not being used for greenwashing and there's a genuine intent to do the right thing, then yeah. Yeah, we partner with another group property in the Northern Territory, Bullo River Station. It's 164,000 hectares, but only about 20%, 30% is any good for cattle. The rest of it is too rocky and, and rugged for cattle. So the owners have contracted us to manage conservation on the balance of the property. So fire management, feral animal control, weed management, and it's a great example of they've got this vision of taking their country back to pre-European days. So they're still growing a beef product. They're generating a high quality Wagyu beef product. They're running an ecotourism business and they're generating conservation outcomes at the same time. It's a really fabulous, multi-layered, interrelated partnership. So Tim, you, you picked a pretty good time then to take
1: on the Australian Wildlife Conservancy during the last decade and the next decade to come looks like a really really promising period of time for restoring australian wildlife australian nature to a state that hasn't been seen for many generations and i'm so grateful to you for taking this time to chat to me so grateful to you for everything you do i'll definitely find time to bring my little tribe to the kimberley and spend some time immersed in australian nature Uh, thank you so much tim i'm very grateful oh ben
0: thank you very much and i look forward to, to hosting you down here
1: I don't think I've ever finished recording one of these podcasts with a stronger desire to hop on a plane and travel, visit some of the projects we've been discussing. It's such a privilege to spend this time talking to Tim. I just can't quite get my head around the scale of the work that the Australian Wildlife Conservancy is doing. It seems to have public and political support. Things seem to be hotting up when it comes to rewilding in Australia. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I did making it. Please do use whatever platform in which you get your podcast to leave us a review, spread the word, share these amongst your friends. It all makes a big difference. And with special thanks to Vivo Barefoot for sponsoring and making this podcast possible. Don't forget, you can change your life by buying yourself a pair of Vivo Barefoot shoes for a 15% discount using the code VIVOREWILDING15. And there's a load more information in the show notes. Next time I'm going to be talking to Steve Davis, who I was lucky enough to visit in the Florida Everglades last November. Steve is the chief scientist of the Everglades Foundation, probably the premier organization working to restore America's most important, most famous wetland landscape.